Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hypersexualized times and to win at this game we call life. Now, guys, today I'm really excited because we have a guest that I headhunted. I heard him on a podcast that I've been listening to for years. It's about entrepreneurship. It's something that I love. And I was really impressed and inspired by his story. So then I went to his YouTube channel and then I was just blown away. He's just self-made. He helps men who are on the brink of divorce to salvage their marriage. And he's created a ton of YouTube videos, but that has led to an online course. That's what he does now. He used to have just a normal job like in computers, but now he just helps men save their marriages for a living. And he makes a very good living. More importantly, he's doing the thing that he loves and he's passionate about. And it's of service to this world. So please take notes. He's got a lot of great ideas, but it's just, he's not a doctor. He's not a psychiatrist. He's nothing like that. He's just passionate about this. He did the work to figure out how he can actually add value to people's lives, help them overcome difficulties, a very specific pain point, which is feeling helpless in their marriage. And he's found a way to really get good at solving that problem. We should all be doing this, guys. We should all be doing this. So please, a round of applause, digital, virtual applause. Welcome, Jeffrey Setuan. So guys, like I said, we have this really cool guy here that I have briefly stalked online and have invited to our podcast. And that's the cool thing that we can do with the internet is when you're doing something cool, you can identify other people that are doing something cool and then you can collaborate and just help create this cascade effect of healing. And so Jeffrey, I've just been super impressed by you straight out of the gate. I want you to know that you have a fan here because there's like academic knowledge and then there's practical real life fixing real life problems knowledge. And it seems like you've doubled down on that. And in an area of the world, that's super important because there's so many people going through divorces and you're kind of like, you're dealing with this area. So first of all, I want to welcome you to the podcast. This is called the Love, Life, and Legacy podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here as well. And you're in Texas? Yeah, we're in Houston, Texas. I think we're going to call this home. (laughs) Really? Yeah. There's like this massive influx there. What's so great about Texas? Tell me. Well, I've always been in Texas. So I moved to the US, I would say 10 years ago to San Antonio first, went to college there. Then I lived in Austin. That was where I met my partner. And then we are now living in Houston. So I've always been in Texas. I don't know what it's like to live other places, but I do like it here. So don't fix what's not broken, I guess. (laughs) And where were you before that? So I lived in Singapore for about 10 years. And then before that, which is where I was born, was Indonesia. Wow. I just spent the entirety of last year in Bali. When the pandemic broke, we were there. We were basically stuck on the island for like a year. Like if Beautiful. you go to Bali, I, would, I wouldn't say you got a good taste of Indonesia because it's such a different place than yeah, yeah. Asia, but it's a nice place for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. When we flew into Jakarta, we were a little bit shocked by what we saw just landing into the airport and it was pretty intense. So you feel like America is really your place. I think so. I think so. I think it has a fine balance of kind of that feminine energy where you can enjoy yourself and kind of let loose, but it has that entrepreneurship spirit we also love. So yeah. you get inspiration from both sides. Yeah, it's a great culture for sure. Amazing. And from what I heard, like you went to school, you, your background is like computers or something like that. Yeah. So I studied finance and marketing. I was like a math geek growing up. <laughs> and when I got out into the work field, I realized that I was gravitating towards data. And so I eventually went into data science wow. and thought about that. And then when I switched to doing working with people in relationships, it was a shock for a lot of people. Uh, Well, I'd like to talk about that because a lot of people are really, they have this desire, especially when they start experiencing healing, they want to spread that around. They want to offer it to other people, but they say, I'm not qualified. I'm not a therapist. I didn't blah, 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 blah. Enter your excuse here. So how did you give yourself permission to be like numbers, very impersonal, you know, like data driven person to getting into people, helping people? There's like some mental functionality that allowed you to even access the chance that, hey, maybe I could do this. Like, what was that transition from things to people? How did you make that transition? I'm not going to tell you that it was a smooth journey. Like, it wasn't like I started with a very strong conviction of what I wanted to do. I actually felt a lot of the same fear and doubt and just turmoil internally for a good four years. So at that point in time, I had enough money saved up to where I know, okay, I had a a decent runway. When I say decent, it was about a six to eight month runway. And when I looked at my job in data science, I liked it, but it wasn't something I wanted to do every single day. So there was a period of two months where I was talking with my partner and we're talking about what can we do? What would light up my fire? And we talked about 
our history of our relationship and it just kind of clicked in us to say, why don't we help people do this? Just teach people what we went through, bust through all the myths that we went through and so on. The hard part though was, you know, I'm Asian. So I guess you guys can't see me, but I look like I'm still in college or in high school. <laughs> that was the first real doubt that I had is who would listen to me? If I go to this marriage niche, these are guys who are going to be 40 years old, 45 years old, who are married, have kids, much more life than I have ever experienced. Why would they listen to me? But fueled by that thought of, you know what, if I die, I want to make sure that I've tried something. I don't want to regret not trying at the very least. So I tried it and I tried it for a good two years. And I tried writing books first and getting my authority set up that way. The thinking was that I think once people understood what I was talking about and what I said and how I went against a lot of the common knowledge that people have about relationships that are quite toxic, I think that people would start to see it. So I was trying to write a book. I was trying to write a blog. I was trying to do Facebook advertising. I mean, I tried so many different methods over the last two years. And then I finally set it up on YouTube. And even when I found YouTube, it was still kind of a rocky road where the first six months I had nothing, I had no traction. It took six months to probably get 50 subscribers. <laughs> a long six months. Yeah. Whenever I publish a video, it would be 13 views. <laughs> I mean, it was insane, <laughs> right? And so that was six months. And then after six months, kept doing it and started to gain traction on that. And I was actually quite surprised. It was very surreal because a lot of these guys that were the initial followers, they're the very burly men type. Like you could tell that they're kind of like the biker types. And for them to listen to my videos, and sometimes I would have a chat with them, and they would have my posters on their wall. <laughs> it was just surreal to me. But that fueled that confidence. So it was yeah. sort of like a slow build of a confidence. So yeah, it wasn't like a smooth transition to I have this conviction, and no matter what, I doubled down on it. It was a lot of doubts. It was a lot of moments when I spent time on the floor just like weeping and crying because I was like, my dream is not coming true. It was messy. And so I'd like to get into you talking about there's common wisdom that's mm. not so wise and it's quite toxic, as you mentioned. So like, what did you identify as a cultural norm that was not congruent with healthy relationships? Like, what did you want to dispel? Yeah, there's a lot here. But the biggest one that I want to dispel is most of us have heard of Gottman's theory of the four horsemen, right? Which is stonewalling, gaslighting as kind of the killers of a relationship. In our experience, it's a bit of a different interpretation of that because whenever we hear people who are stonewalling, or shutting down, or gaslighting. Can you explain those terms a little bit for yeah. anybody who might not know? So stonewalling basically is a easy term for when people avoid conversations, avoid confrontations, avoid conflicts, avoid conversations they don't either agree with or they're not comfortable with, and just kind of shut down. A lot of people in relationships, they hear like, oh, communication is key. So they take that home and they go, oh, hubby, we need to communicate. <laughs> and the husband kind of like backs off. And a lot of men and women... Whenever they back off like that, they get labeled as stonewalling. And when you get labeled as stonewalling, it's been assigned to almost like a narcissistic tendency. I think that's really damaging because I'm sure in our lives, we have stonewalled people before. Absolutely. There's a lot of times in our lives where either the problem is way too complex, maybe the person has made it very difficult for us to express something to that person. And so maybe our boss comes in and says, how come you didn't tell me about this when I asked you? Internally, you're like, well, if I did tell you, it would have wreaked havoc. <laughs> and you would be so pissed at me, I would just be buried. Sure. And that's the reason why I don't want to share with you. Or sometimes when the problems become so complex, people ask us, what's the issue? Can you tell me more about the issue? We just go, it's nothing. We're not trying to stonewall out of narcissism, but we're just, we have a self-preservation issue there. But the problem is, you know, when we're too quick to blame character, and scientists actually call this the fundamental attribution error, when we tend to blame character for issues, we start to not only be angry internally, but we start to actually perpetuate the same problems over and over again. So let's say that if someone's stonewalling or gaslighting out of a self-preservation issue, and you call them a narcissist when they stonewall or gaslight, well, then you're going to self-preserve even more. Yeah. You double down on that. And so it puts people in this vicious cycle, and most people are not even aware of it. Their relationship actually has a lot of potential, mm. and their partner has a lot of potential but they never get to find out what their potential is because they've already set upon this vicious cycle. That's one of the big myths that I'm trying to dispel right now, at least. Got it. So in some ways, it's the label that's not helping people because then they say, I am this or you are this. Yeah. And really, it's also about relationships is about or managing your emotions is about how you interpret your world. If you interpret stonewalling as a narcissistic abuse, then there's no way you can be calm and there's no way you can lead the conversation to a calm place actually have a conversation and a place of understanding. But if you simply switch 
that interpretation of the same event into uh, maybe it's a self-preservation problem. Maybe they're feeling the lack of safety, the lack of trust, the mm -hmm. lack of ability to actually express themselves instantly. By just that change of the interpretation, we get a very different emotion inside of us. And it allows us to lead the conversation better to a healthier place. Because you're a little bit more empathetic to where they're coming from? Right. Got it. Right. Yeah, I can see that. It's less adversarial and more we're on the same team. We just function differently here, better at left wing stuff. I'm more at right. I mean, I'm a Canadian, so I'm talking about hockey here. Yeah. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just a little bit more practically, you were in a relationship that you deemed to be healthy. And then was it because you were consciously creating that relationship with your partner that gave you the confidence to explain it to other people? Because a lot of people, they might have something good in their life, but they might have no idea how they got that thing, or they might not be able to express how other people can have the same results that they did. Just taking you back to my own background as well. I grew up in a very traditional home. My parents never said, I love you once to each other. We didn't, they didn't even sleep in the same bed. We don't have dinners as a family, you know? So love and romance wasn't something that we prioritized. I didn't see that. I didn't have any example of that growing up. Even in my early stages of this relationship, we've been together six years now. It was a terrible relationship. We were fighting every chance we get. Every time we had a conflict, we couldn't resolve it. We were feeling more and more closed off, having to sweep things under the rug more and more and more until it eventually goes up. And I think this is the experience of a lot of people as well. It's like this slow death by a thousand cuts kind of experience over sure. a long period of time. So when we first started to rebuild our relationship, we read a lot of the same books went to therapy and we learned things like the four horsemen. We learned things like the five love languages, the attachment styles, and none of those actually helped us. In fact, it made it even worse. Not, and I can expand more on like how that made things worse for us. Sure. And so it was when we started to really discuss things and think about the first principles of everything that we were talking about and learning and discussing was when we started to come up with our own answers. We were bold enough to actually object and counter a lot of those common advices. And that's when we started to get more clarity and grow a lot more as well. The conviction that we have about what we say works is not only have we experienced it ourselves, but we have consumed every possible resource out there. And we have seen other people who are building the relationship consume the same resources. And we saw them crumbling and struggling. And we had this small group of people where it was me, my partner, and another couple where we were on our own journey of discovery and we were the ones thriving. And so it's almost like if you had to learn the English language from the start, from scratch, you would be a better teacher because you know exactly how to go from zero to 100. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people who have good relationships going from the beginning, it's really hard to articulate what exactly led them there. But because we went from zero to 100, we can't articulate the exact steps we took. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like this is what I understand and why YouTube is such a great forum for you is because it's this natural thing that we used to get in tribes from elders, from people who've been around to help expedite certain processes so that we don't make the same stupid mistakes that they made a generation prior, where it's kind of like you've evolved and now you're helping people evolve quicker. Because how long you said this journey was six years, you could probably shave off, I don't know, five and a half years from somebody's journey if they just exactly. you know, follow <laughs> your advice. Yeah. And so that's really this collective evolution that's taking place, which is really cool. Because as far as I know, are you credentialed? Are you a doctor? Do you have a lot of fancy titles? No? No. And I'm surprised at how little people actually care about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the amazing thing. Because a lot of times academic knowledge doesn't help practical real life situations. It's somebody who's been through it and can say, this is what I did. And this is why I did it. Right. It's so right. cool. Yeah. It's what just almost so practical to me that it eludes us. Yeah. Because we're used to going to a somebody who, like a sage to tell us how we should live our lives rather than finding out somebody who's living the life that we would want and figure out how they did that. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting too, Andrew, is in the beginning, we were seen as the program of like a last resort. You know, people would consider Gottman first, Sue Johnson, Esther Perel, whatever it is, the big names in the industry before they consider us. What's funny is now we're having more and more people who have spent close to $50,000 on other programs and they come to our program. And they're like, I wish I found this sooner. Mm. And we, in fact, we have a lot of therapists who practice Gottman method and so on. They come to our program because once their clients started to go into our program, that's when they start to see the massive change. I see. And so, you know, it's, I knew I wanted to disprove the fact that academic theory was always best. 
very early on, but it sort of just happened more organically for me where it's now, I don't have to say it outright, mm -hmm. but it just kind of people realize it themselves, I guess. It's nice. <laughs> you just stand right next to your results and say, huh? huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Almost like that. <laughs> and so honestly, we're in a society where there's a lot of emphasis still on accumulating knowledge, going to school and all this stuff. Very little education on how to be a human being, on how to have successful relationships. And so the result is that I don't know what the statistic is nationally. I hear it's everybody always quotes like divorce rate is 50%, whatever. Let's just use that as a generalized metric. But like, what's a common reason for this? Why are people finding themselves, you start out in love and then you end up in divorce? <laughs> like, why is this happening in droves? First of all, why is this happening? We can get into some solutions later, but why is this happening? To us, it's very simple, actually. If you look at the nature, the natural artifact of two people being together, it's two people with different thoughts, beliefs, decision points, and everything. The myth that we always hear is you got to find someone who's very similar to you. If you have shared interests, whatever, is great. But what people don't realize is that it's not the similarities you have that determines whether you're successful or not. It's the differences you have and also your ability to go through and talk about those differences. So why is it good to have differences? The differences are not bad. Let me give you an example of this. And this is how the feedback loop and the cycle kind of goes downhill for a lot of people. So let's say you start out with a simple argument, like wanting different temperatures in the bedroom, okay, which is a common thing. And you have a difference here, but because you don't have the internal ability to be able to stay calm and poised through that conflict, and you're not understanding how to use the right frameworks or the right ways of talking to find a win-win, a deep understanding and a win-win on that, that small conflict becomes something bigger. And whenever you're not able to resolve that one difference, it creates a multi-dimensional difference, which is now you're upset, not about the bed thing, the temperature, but now you're upset because you can't even talk about it. So it's another layer here. So that creates another problem, but the other problem creates, whenever the other problem comes in, you don't have the skill to be able to turn that from negative to positive. And so it creates four problems, then eight, then 16. As these problems come up, you're starting to feel less and less safe in the relationship, more repressed, more bitterness. And again, it's like the death by a thousand cuts where it starts with this one small difference, yeah. but the chasm just grows and grows over time. And by the time it's five years later, when people are on their last legs in the relationship, they don't see the millions of things that happened mm. in the five years that led to the downfall. And so they misattribute it by saying, oh, we're just not a good fit. Oh, we're sure. just not this. We're just like four horsemen, whatever it is. But they don't see like the real cause of it is because you're not able to take those key differences you have and actually create a culture where you can express it. You can get an understanding on it and find a win-win on it as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, you alluded to some core skills, right? Of handling this. Do you have like pillars that you recommend people develop like pillar internal core muscle groups that they can develop? Yeah. So in terms of the pillars of the, how it manifests in the relationship, we have basically the five pillars and the base of this pillar is again, that emotional and psychological safety, right? Okay. The essence here is that if you have safety for you to express your thoughts properly, your feelings properly, and your partner to express their thoughts properly, then conflicts no longer become an issue. And in fact, they become opportunities now. But then in terms of how you go about climbing those pillars and building safety, there's really three key ingredients that we often tell people. Number one is you got to understand the frameworks or this is the ways of talking and the ways of maneuvering yourself around the conversation so that you can actually get to a deeper understanding. The next layer behind that is what we call the mindsets. And there's really two parts to mindset that really matter for us. One is about our ability to shift our interpretations of events, of actions in a healthier way so that we can stay calm and poised enough to play out the right conversations. Right. Mm -hmm. So for example, my partner, she drives like a sports car and she backed out her sports car to like this garage one time to the side of the garage, right? It was going to be an expensive fix. Like it's going to be like 10K or whatever. If let's say in that moment, my interpretation of that was, why are you so careless? There would be no chance I would be calm. There'd be no chance I would be curious enough, compassionate enough to actually dig deeper to understand where she's coming from. But if I shifted that interpretation to be, hmm, I wonder what was going on in her life to make her a bit careless at that particular moment. Instantly, with a shift of interpretation, I can become a lot more understanding, calm, compassionate, and actually play out the frameworks to discover deeper about what is going on in her life and actually turn that from a negative experience into a positive experience where that's now a memory we look back on and say, wow, that was a great conversation we had. 
So framing it, framing it in the context of getting the most out of the situation rather than attacking somebody. Exactly, exactly. And it's almost a lot of people when they think about anger management, for example, or emotions management, they think about tactics like meditation, journaling, taking walks in a park. But we believe in this first principle Mm -hmm. that emotions simply arise via the way we interpret life. So if you want to change our emotions, we simply have to program and change the way we interpret our world, change the lens in which we see our world. A lot of people, they spend a lot of time meditating, journaling, but it doesn't really change the interpretations. And so in the moment, it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. In the moment when things are heated, when things are on, it doesn't really work. But if you can change your interpretations, then in the moment reflexively, you're going to change the stories you tell yourself, and it's going to be easier for you to stay calm and poised without using your willpower or how we say it is clenching your fist to stay calm in a way. Yeah. So is that premeditated? Because like a lot of the people listening to this, they're overcoming some pretty self-destructive habits just on their own, but pornography, you know, this kind of stuff that's denigrating their sense of value. And they can cognitively understand why they're doing it in hindsight or in foresight. But in the heat of the moment, it's not always clear to them how to do the thing that's aligned with who they want to be. In order to tell yourself a certain story, is it more of a mental game or are you using nervous system like through breath work or something like that? So we're going to get a bit deep here. Okay. We have like 60 plus hours of material in our program to explain this stuff. So I hope got I'm it, not it. going over people's heads, but I'm trying to be as detailed as possible. So the second thing about mindset that we all often explore is sort of like exploring the cognitive biases that we have and how it affects our thinking, how it affects the way we define ourselves, how we understand society in general. So this is a really, really hard one for me to explain, but the best way is, do you mind if we like play a very short mathematical game just to show you what I do here? Let's do it. All right. So this is what I do with my students all the time. I'm going to start by giving you three numbers, Andrew. Okay. Okay. Three numbers are two, four, and eight. Okay. Now I'm thinking of a rule that governs the three numbers I just gave you. So a rule could be, for example, it's even numbers, or it could be multiplied by two, two, four, and eight. Your job is to get three chances to guess the rule that I'm thinking about, the mathematical rule. But the way you guess it is by proposing a unique set of three numbers that you think fits the rule. And once you give the three numbers, I will tell you that whether the three numbers you gave fits my rule or not, and you guess it that way. It's almost like 20 questions. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Okay, let's try it. So again, the numbers, the first numbers are two, four, and eight. Give me another set of three numbers to try to guess the rule I'm thinking about. Me give you three numbers? Yeah. Um, let's say 16, 32, 48. 16, 32, 48. That fits my rule. What do you think it is? I suck at math. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is my, my math teacher in 10th grade is just shaking their head. But um, we played this with like a thousand people sure. so far. Uh, Only one uh, got it. Yeah, no, I, I see the metaphor. I suck at math though. So it's, this is kind of embarrassing. I would say they're all numbers that you hate because of your cognitive bias. You hate those items. No, yeah. it's not. Just to be real quick, right? For people who want to play this game, it's the rule was basically numbers in increasing order for me. But what a lot of people do is, if let's say they think that the rule is even numbers, they would continue to pump out even numbers to say 10, 12, 14. I would say, yes. Is it 20, 22, 24? Yes. And they would feel a lot more confident each time. But actually, they're not getting to that answer, any closer to the answer. The only way they would get closer if they went, instead of what we call hypothetic, they start with a hypothesis, leading with that, the questions. Yep. If you want antithetic, if you try to disprove me or yourself. So if you said, for example, Jeff, what about 10, 8, 6? I would have said, no, that doesn't fit my rule. And you would have gotten a much better idea really fast on what that rule is, which is just numbers in increasing order. So the reason why I play this game with you is in relationships, what a lot of people go through is they ask questions. They think they're saying the right things. They think they're understanding their partner, but really they're not. They're not getting closer to it. But just like how you were in the game, it's like, I don't know the answer. I think I know, but I don't know. It seems like I don't know. And they get really frustrated and really confused when they thought they listened, but their partner says, you haven't really. And they get lost. And it's because, again, of the subconscious way that we think, all the biases that affects how we think that prevents us from actually understanding our relationship, our partner, and ourselves as well. I was just going to say that it also, from my vantage point, you've created a set of rules based on what you think is right. And I have no real shot of fitting into that fantasy that you have that I'm going to magically figure out exactly your rules that you've set up. So it kind of screws both parties over in a sense, right? Because yeah. I'm making assumptions about you. 
you've created a framework that I could never fit into. And so we're all losing in this game. Right, exactly, exactly. And it's almost like how interactions happen often in relationships too, where the rules of the game, the confines of the box in a way, just puts us in very different ideas of what each other are trying to express. But we can never get out of the bubble because of the way we think we cannot be antithetic. We cannot just admit we don't know something. So that's an example of how when people are trying to go overcome their addiction, it requires a lot of understanding about who they are, mm-hmm. about the effects of their environment, of their past and so on, on that behavior, on why it's so hard to resist. Yeah. And often if we are not thinking in the right ways, we can often lead to wrong conclusions. Mm-hmm. And the wrong conclusions can often lead us to wrong diagnosis. And the worst part is we won't even know it. We went to a wrong diagnosis. Could somebody theoretically, or have you ever seen it, do that game that you just played with themselves? Like, so, can you set up a framework that you can't even win because of many assumptions that you've made in your life? And like, I need to be this, I need to be this. And you've created rules that you can't even win at that game. Happens a lot. Happens a lot. This manifests in conversations. Because once we make an assumption about something, we no longer feel the need to even ask. And it's a very subconscious thing. And if we don't ask, if we don't ask the right questions, then we can't even find out the right answers. This happens with our partner, with ourselves. And it's just, again, this is how people get the wrong diagnosis, get the wrong treatments, and get the wrong path without them even knowing it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Diagnosis, man. I've heard so many nightmares and some horrific statistics about how misdiagnosis is such a massive contributor to the destabilization of our society because even the pharmaceutical industry, whatever, they just have these broad answers to very specific problems that people don't fit into it. And I get it. When you're dealing with a ton of people with a lot of nuanced problems, it's a lot easier just to be, say, a blanket, hey, take this pill and shut up and leave me alone instead of really getting to know somebody. But When you look at kind of our situation as a society from a macro perspective, in terms of divorce rates, in terms of this, it's really the complexities are becoming exponential because we as a society don't know how to talk. We as individuals don't know how to talk. And you stack all these things together, you have a ton of anxiety. You have a ton of isolation and you're seeing the results unfold now, right? So really, it seems like the scaling back of getting to know yourself is really the answer to all these problems at the end of the day. Just to mention that divorce stats too, it's like, I don't know if it's 50% or more now, but even the people who are not divorced, it's not to say that they're happy. Yeah. It's probably yeah. bigger than 50%. But to me, the reason why a lot of people, I think, struggle into creating a good culture in a relationship is because they have a lot of these paradigms and teachings that they have been exposed to that are what I call like a true but useless. So let's say we go back to this four horsemen thing. And you read this philosophy by John Gawain, and you are finally able to say, my partner is a narcissist. He's a stonewaller, he's a gaslighter, and he's abusive. Now, it feels good to know that. The certainty feels good in our bodies. But if you think about it, what can you do with that information besides leave? So it's a true fact, but it's useless. Because it doesn't add to resolution. It doesn't create resolution. It seems like it makes it easier to identify the problem and to say you're the problem, actually, exactly. instead of to create resolution. Yeah, so it's what we call in our program the TBUs, the true but useless, and something that yeah. be careful of. Another one is also the attachment styles. People love attachment styles. Like if you look at the videos of attachment styles and you're on YouTube, they get like multiple millions of views. People love diagnosing themselves. Oh, I have the avoidant, anxious. You have whatever. Sure. But again, it's okay, it's true, but if you ask a lot of professionals on this, what do we do? They will tell you, go journal and meditate and just be more positive. It's like (laughs) saying to someone like with a really serious illness to say, go home and eat healthier and drink water. Again, it's a true fact. It's fun to find out, but it's not useful. And the way we think about it in our program is if you have whatever attachment style you have is really determined by the self-esteem that you have. And the self-esteem for us is two parts. It's one part is self-efficacy. This is about your confidence and your ability to accomplish something, to get through a problem. So for example, if you are at work and you have very high self-efficacy in your work, you know the protocols, you know what to do. You're not going to be shy of facing problems because you know how to tackle it. The other part to self-esteem is what we call self-worth. This is about your belief in your own self-value, basically. This is about your ability to manage your mind. And so if you look at the attachment styles, you look at avoidant, that's just someone with low self-esteem. Either because you have low self-efficacy to tackle the problem, low self-worth to tackle the problem, or both. 
but if we understand that the attachment style is a self-efficacy or a self-esteem problem, that is not a true but useless fact. We can actually grow. We can actually do something to grow a self-esteem. So rather than focusing on all your time on the attachment styles, focus on your self-esteem. Because if you do that, you're not going to be so anxious. You're not going to be so avoidant. You're going to be quite secure, right? Yeah. So that's how kind of we bring things down to the first principles, kind of go against what we think is right, what we think we should do, and just get to the root core of something to actually give you something to do. Yeah, foundations are building some momentum. Yeah, very practical. Exactly. Yeah. And so what are some common benefit to working with you, like an aha moment that people are experienced, right? Like, because they're inundated with a lot of information, but you synthesize it into this really powerful elixir of information. <laughs> <laughs> so then when you see people kind of get it, like what's a common thing that they seem to get? I think the biggest epiphany for people, and there's a lot of assumptions that's made here, a lot of premises that you have to accept as well. But the final epiphany, I guess, that people realize is it doesn't take two to tango. So a lot of people, they're in a bad relationship and they're dealing with a partner that doesn't want to work on the relationship. And we hear this saying of it takes two to tango and we take it a bit too far and we say, well, if my partner is not going to want to work on it, no point. But we enroll 500 to 700 people a year and virtually every single one of them starts out in this position where they come to me because their partner doesn't want to help, doesn't want to work on the relationship. But when you start to understand how to have the right frameworks, mindsets, and also what we call the identity shifting inside it as well, that's when you realize that your partner was stonewalling, gaslighting, doing all her crazy behaviors because she wasn't happy with the relationship, because of the lack of safety, lack of trust, that once you understand those three levels of change, you're able to change the culture, change yourself, and show these changes in a massive way. You'll be very shocked at how much that changes your partner's behavior as well. So basically, when you create some semblance of harmony within yourself, it kind of projects outwards and it impacts your environment to some degree. It's to some degree, yes. So we focus on internal shifts first. Yeah. Once you make the internal shift, that will manifest automatically externally. So it'll influence the way you talk, the way you come across, the way you guide conversations, the way you understand and so on. And once you have this both this internal and external shift, you'll be shocked at how many of our clients, for example, once they start to change the way they talk, the way they think, not only do their partners come back, but they also change the way they think and speak to be more similar to them. So they kind of emulate it very subconsciously. And this would have been unheard of in the beginning when they have all these fed all these myths about, oh, my partner is just a bad person. Sure, or, sure, sure. She's a stonewaller. She tends to avoid problems. Like, again, it's a true but useless information <laughs> that we'll get too. That's really interesting because I've been studying this one guy. He more focuses on neuroscience, more about meditation, but a little bit different than what you're talking about. But it's about brain-heart coherence mm -hmm. and that basically most of our lives is spent in discord. But the moment that you create coherence within yourself, you start to tune into that coherence with the things around you and you're creating this song. And so when there's a couple that's in incoherence or discord, they themselves are individually like that. And then there's kind of a this systematic breakdown. But if one can kind of get in tune, right? Like an instrument in tune, then the other can tune off of that person and you can start creating a melody that works, right? Yeah, yeah. So two points on that. Like I'm not against meditation for sake. I do it every single day. But I think we need to understand that meditation is just a tool. A tool is to observe our mind better. But what often happens to a lot of people is that when they're observing their minds, they're observing their minds with the same paradigm, right? And so instead of, Meditation being a calming effect ends up being kind of a worse effect where you're observing ugly thoughts. Same thing with journaling too. And the thing about one person tuning the other one, what a lot of people don't realize is that this feedback loop between you and your partner is happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether you know it or not. And for a lot of couples who are struggling, that feedback loop is going in a negative direction. So for example, your partner comes home, she comes home a bit pissed, a bit short. Her being pissed and short makes you kind of pissed and short. And you being pissed and short makes her more pissed and short. I mean, that's already happening. Yeah. It's just happening in a negative direction. All we're trying to do in the program is to make you recognize that this feedback between you and your partner is happening every time for you to observe it, catch it, and be able to turn it from negative into positive. And once you understand that, you realize that what you do actually affects what your partner does. And now it's affecting it in a negative way. We just need to understand how to affect it in a positive way. Yeah, we're in a relationship with every single thing around us. We're just, it's usually unconscious. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's wonderful. And so in terms of all like the single people who are not yet in a relationship, but they're prepping, what are some good things that they can be investing into right now to really 
be in a good relationship with themselves and to create some fundamental skills that'll pay off later? Yeah. I'm not sure of a good way to answer this because okay. we get this asked a lot. And this is something that I never was able to answer. People ask me, for example, hey, Jeff, I can't afford your program. Would you recommend me some book or some podcasts or other resources? And I would say no, because this is the reason why I built this program to talk, go against a lot of the common knowledge and to go against a lot of the books. So besides just joining the program and watching the videos, I don't know how to answer that really because a lot of our clients have taken all the programs imaginable and this is the one that really sticks with them. And that happens for a reason, I guess. Yeah, it makes sense. You've created your own methodology and yeah, okay. I, I can live with that and I like it. <laughs> I'm just trying to give an action step because there are quite a few listeners who are in, let's say, the early phase of a relationship. Some of them are in the courting phase and they're kind of getting to know somebody with intentionality because that's one thing that we really double, triple down on is to live with intentionality in every aspect of your life and figure out how you want to relate to stuff and orient yourself in that way. So is there any any bone that you can throw them that would help them at least not step on their own toes or the other person's toes? The one big myth that I like to debunk as well is this notion or understanding that we have of this dream relationship where we don't have conflicts. I don't think that's what differentiates successful couples versus failures. We often imagine like, oh, people who are successful, couples who are successful, they have just less conflict. They have less arguments, they have less fights. The couples who are failing, they're the ones who are very different, who have a lot of conflicts. That's not true, right? Again, it really boils down to how you can take that negative conflict into a positive. Because really, it's the successful couples are the ones who can succeed despite the same problems. And the couples who are failing are the ones who fail because of the same problems. Don't have this idea that a relationship is supposed to be no conflicts, no fights, because life is just entropy, it's just everywhere. But instead, learn the skill to be able to take the conflicts and negative stuff and turn it into positive. And enjoy, and the implications of this is quite massive actually, because a lot of the reasons why I think men are not able to become good leaders in the relationship also is because whenever a conflict happens, or whenever their partner needs to tell them the truth about something, they see that as a threat. Oh, I shouldn't be having this because if I have this, it means that my relationship sucks. And so they become avoidant. They retreat from that. They stonewall, which makes their partner even more pissed. And that destroys all the safety and trust because now their partner thinks, I don't want to express stuff to my partner anymore because if I do, well, it will wreak havoc. So this is all though bred with the paradigm that I'm not supposed to have conflicts. But if we learn to basically look at conflicts as a part of life, as an opportunity to actually experience something better, right? Then we're going to lead into it. And that makes it easier for us to create that safety, that trust. So that the next time the problem occurs, there's no hesitation for my partner to actually express her thoughts to me because she knows like, I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to deal with it well. Like a great example of this is one time our car broke down and we have conflict. We we're hungry. We we're like tired. And a lot of people would see my partner being short like a threat. And we would play out the negative cycle over and over again. But for me, I saw this as, okay, we have a problem. We have a conflict. A lot of people would say, you know what? I don't care about how miserable we are while we're fixing the car. We just need to get the car fixed, right? Get to the destination fast. I don't care about how miserable this is. But for me, it's more of, you know what? We have this conflict, but this is actually an opportunity for me to show my partner just how poised and calm I can be, mm-hmm. how we can turn conflicts into actually a fun moment, a fun process. And so now we got home, but we had fun doing it at the same time. Mm. This all again bred from that paradigm of conflicts are not to be avoided. They're meant to for you to turn from negative to positive. That's it. Yeah, I like that. And it's funny how your two instances so far were about cars. Because that's, <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many breakups were caused because of car incidents. But no, that's pretty awesome. Because it's almost gamifying the relationship. Like if you quit every time there's a bad guy in a video game, you'd quit all video games. Because that's the whole point. But that frames it. So again, that you're on the same team. That's a hard thing to really remember, right? I've been married for over nine years now. And we're at our worst when we're trying to prove ourselves to each other. And we're at our best when we remember, wait, we're the heads, we have three kids. Like we're, we're supposed to be on the same team here, right? But it's reframing that. That's adjusting yourself to reorient, to frame it in that context. Yeah. You bring up a really good point. That's a massive struggle for a lot of my people in general. We call this kind of what we call the paradox of change. So the paradox goes something like this. It's like, we work with a lot of people who have really destroyed their relationship. It doesn't matter whose fault. Right? But the relationship is really gone at this point. And so 
you know, when the relationship is gone like that, usually the one or both partners has a confirmation bias about who the other person is. Like, oh, that's who you are, who you're not, whatever it is. And so when they try to change the way they talk, the way they behave, the way they think, you know, let's say they start to ask more questions. Their partner will often say to them, like, why are you being a therapist? Like, stop something like that. That's not how you sound. And that's actually a common thing that happens to all of life. So, you know, you ask anyone in life, they want to become richer. They want to become happier, have better sex, have better relationships. I mean, they want a different life, essentially. But to get the different life, they need to become someone different. Right? They need to think differently, act differently, and so on. But the funny part is that as soon as you try to become someone different, people will resist you. The same way when I tried to change the way I talk in my relationship, my partner was like, why are you being so fake? Stop it, right? Or when I was trying to change my career to do this, people were saying, like, are you crazy? Like, this is not yeah. you. You are, you are a data guy, right? This is not you. You're not guys on YouTube or writing books or whatever. And so the paradox here is that people want to have a different life. But whenever they try, they get this very intense resistance. And this intense resistance starts externally, but then it becomes internal doubt. And then they back down. A lot of people back down. A lot of people go, for example, a lot of people, when they change the way they talk, and their partner says, why are you sounding like a therapist? They go, oh, you're right. Let me back down. So they can never break through to the next level because they cannot fight this paradox of change that we call. So the difference between a lot of people who are successful, I think, and people who are struggling and stuck in the cycle of failures is people who are failures and they stay stuck in there. And when I say failures, I don't mean like just being broke. I mean, it's just like an internal state. They let other people and external stuff define who they are. While the people who are successful, they're understanding how to source that identity of who they want to become from inside, from internal. Sure. And they will stay steadfast despite people's resistance. And what's interesting is, you know, if you go steadfast, like right now, two years later or six years later in my relationship, my partner knows me as who I am today. In the short term, she was questioning everything I do. But now it's just my new identity. And when now people know me as the relationship guy, I'm no longer the data guy. So the people who are successful, they break through that paradox of change because they source it internally. I think you have to do that. Is that a matter of persistence, of having a clear reason why you want to change and just to attempt it? Because we have, just a few days ago, we released a program called Connection Equals Freedom yeah. based on the premise that opposite of addiction is connection. So then therefore connections with yourself, with whatever, you know. But my whole pitch to why this is worthy is that you get really good at identifying who you want to be. And then every day you're just practicing becoming that person. But within that paradigm, you're trying and sometimes you, you're going to fail, right? Sometimes it's a miss because you're attempting to be somebody that you're not or not yet. And so you might kind of veer off a little bit because it's trial and error. So is the real skill here persistence of just keep on trying until it feels right? Or how do you know you're there? Or This is actually a massive, massive part of our program. It's what we call the identity shifting part. Okay. This is the part that nobody talks about. So to just give you a quick introduction to how I see this, right? It's imagine you're standing in front of two people and these two people are trying to quit smoking. So you give the first person a cigarette and he says to you, no, thanks, man. I'm trying to quit. That's fine. Second person, you give the same cigarette and he says, no, thanks, man. I'm not a smoker. It's they're both trying to quit. But the second guy has that conviction inside the, his identity. He's become yeah. himself, right? He's going to most likely quit. But most people, when they try to become different, they try to change. They're the first person. They say, I'm not calm, but I'm trying to be. It becomes innocent, but it's actually very, very damaging because you're trying to fundamentally become someone who you're not. So the language is identifying their lack of commitment to become that thing, in a sense. An example of that, yeah. yeah. So you can take this further in our program and imagine three nodes. So on the right side here, you have the node you can label that as having. Then move over to the left. Another node is doing. And then on the left side is being. So a lot of people work right to left, where they focus on what they want to have first. This is the outcome I want to have. The outcome they want to have defines what they want to do. And they hope that when they do enough, it becomes a being. But this can never work because whenever you are sourcing your doing, your identity from the having, you have to understand that before you get success, you're going to face a lot of dips, a lot of challenges. And if your motivation is so tethered to that outcome, then when the outcome is bad, you're going to get demotivated. When the outcome is good, you're going to get motivated. And so most people never get to sustain this high level of motivation for very long because they're working right to left. They're sorting everything from the having. But what we try to do is to say, no, focus on that being first. Right? Really clarify what that being is. Subconsciously shift yourself to that new being. When you can effortlessly be, you can effortlessly do. 
when you can effortlessly do, you effortlessly have. Nice. And when people do that, they become a lot more consistent with and do things and change with a lot more conviction because it's who they are. It's their identity now. Yeah, I love it. I, I love it. I was just reading that the other day, the be do have thing. And it's so powerful, but it's it. I love the way you describe it. And it needs to jump off the paper because it is so contrary to how we're bred in this world, right? Yeah. Which is like, the dangling the thing in front of your face. Yeah. You want happiness, you have to have this. Work exactly. your ass off to get this. Yeah. Slave away until you can finally purchase happiness and it doesn't work because you're yeah. still the same person with a nice jacket. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. Thank you. Thank you for diving deep. You know, I appreciate it. I know with this content, you probably asked similar questions or different questions that cause you to answer a lot of the same stuff. And I know sometimes that's like mental drudgery. So I appreciate you taking the time to kind of dive deep into this stuff because we're figuring this thing out together, right? As a human race. And I believe that when people spend the time to especially identify who it is that they want to be in the first place, then the stuff that's blocking them just really becomes so evident. And it becomes a lot easier just to shift it out of the way. It's not as much of a struggle because it feels like more like your calling, like your destiny rather than some kind of superficial desire. Which, yeah. Uh, yeah, like you said, is just fades away very quickly at the first stage of adversity. You're like, ah, maybe I shouldn't, right? <laughs> ah, maybe I shouldn't be the relationship guy. It's too hard, right? <laughs> Instead, you're crying on the floor <laughs> with 30 subscribers after six months. That's It's, it's like that's where we need to go because I think our world is slowly breaking down in a good way. But it's giving us the opportunity to say, well, what do we want? If we can identify what's not working, which is most structures that men has created, then what's better, right? Yeah. Starting with ourselves and then next is our relationships with actual other people. And you're doing such really good. I, I love the fact that your depth of knowledge is so wide and deep. I know you're helping a lot of people. So who should be in your course? Please identify the demographic that would really get the most value out of your course. Yeah. I mean, most of the people that we work with are driven and motivated by saving the relationship. Basically, they're on the last leg of the relationship in a very dire situation. They need help immediately. But really, like, if we want to broaden our horizon of who we can work with, it's really anyone who is motivated and really pumped to really discover parts of themselves, their inner self, the way they think, their identity shifting and so on, and the way to talk differently. You want to take it beyond what books can and beyond what your imagination currently can take you, we can help you with that. I mean, we're going to blow your minds a little bit. <laughs> and I can say that confidently because without flinching, because like we hear it every single day from, you know, we have politicians, celebrities now, we have therapists, and this is their lifelong obsession with programming. Wow. If you want that commitment to grow yourself and to grow yourself for the sake of having better relationships romantically or with work or with your family. I mean, this stuff applies pretty universally. Awesome. Yeah. Because I know some people who are in a tough spot with their relationship, but I also know some people who maybe their wife actually did leave them. And that's as far as the wife is concerned, come, that's the end of that. So this program would also work for them or help them kind of sort through this. Situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very widely encompassing program. We talk about how to find your masculinity or femininity, how to lower your level of anxiety lower your level of need where you're not showing like a toxic neediness or toxic indifference, right? Where a lot of people okay. pretend to be indifferent, to be powerful, but it's really not making you powerful. Teaching you how to talk, I mean, it's very widely encompassing because we really want to make this a one-stop shop for anything relationship and even the periphery of what it means to have a good relationship as well. Outstanding. And so where can people find you? Where's the best place to find Jeffrey online? Yeah, just look up my name on YouTube. We'll have sure. it in the show notes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one with that name. With that <laughs> one, so. And if you want to explore what we talk about in the program a bit deeper, we do have a masterclass in about an hour and a half. Where okay. We kind of go in depth into the different processes that we have. All our clients have used and myself to rebuild that relationship from the ground up and how to get the internal change that we need as well. Outstanding, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for, first of all, joining me here now. But also, more importantly, just thank you for believing in yourself, taking that, that was more than just like a little hop, skip and a jump. That was like, you overcame a lot to go from that one identity as a data guy to the savant that you are, the relationship savant. And I just want to say thank you, because the more that people actually do that, there's so many people that have all this stuff in them, right? They have the capability of doing this, but it just remains trapped in this former identity that locks this. 
So I just want to say thank you for doing that hard work because I don't know if, I'm sure people thank you for the course, but I don't know if anybody's thanked you just for doing your own work so that the course could come out of you. On behalf of humanity, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Well, it's nice to be acknowledged. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, so guys, we'll have all the links to everything below. If you know anybody who's experiencing difficulty in their marriage, like your parents, like anybody, please send them this way because a lot of people are going through this program and experiencing so much healing on the other side. So send people, there should be a mass exodus towards Jeffrey. So let's make it happen, okay? Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank Thank you for showing up, bro. Thank you, yeah. Had a good time. Hey, Andrew Love here, and I wanted to plant a seed in your mind before you go. You see, a lot of people, when they start to consume our content, they listen to our podcasts, they watch our videos, they read our blogs, they start to believe in the idea of freedom as a possibility for them and their lives, and it is. You can break free from porn, you can build amazing, eternal relationships, but it requires you to make the jump. It requires you to commit to transformation. And that only happens when you invite other people into your journey. You see, a lot of people think that because I got into porn by myself, I can get out of it by myself. And that's the wrong thinking. It's not about simply removing a negative force from your life. It's about creating fulfillment and connection and intimacy with other people. So we really recommend, first and foremost, that you build a team of accountability partners, facilitators, group members, and we can do that. We have all that waiting for you, but you need to first reach out to us. If you already have people in your life that you think can help you, we have online courses that will teach you both how to create a dynamic that works in terms of accountability. But if you don't have an accountability partner, we already have volunteers who are waiting for somebody to help. We have groups that are waiting for somebody like you. But your role and your job is to merely reach out to us and we can work together with you to create a powerhouse team so that you can build the life of your dreams. We look forward to hearing from you.